Hello, I'm Michael McKenzie. Welcome to a podcast of RN First Bite. And today, a couple of stories that really demonstrate how our food connections to the past can help us deal with the struggles we have today and tomorrow. Take, for example, the Aztec Empire. A good-looking young man would be chosen, and for a whole year, he would be treated as a god, and he would be given all kinds of privileges, women with whom he could lie, food that would be the food that you would give to high priests and to the Aztec emperor, but also you would give to gods. All this would happen until the very moment when a priest would reach in and extract your heart. So food for people involved in human sacrifice was important both before the sacrifice itself, but it's reasonable to ask, well, what happened to the flesh? Now, let me assure you, I'm not suggesting we have to place ourselves in harm's way to really appreciate what's on offer. But Mexico's indigenous food harks back to those Aztec times before the Spanish invaders. And that authenticity can now finally be found in Mexican restaurants in Australia instead of those taco imposters. More on that later, because we begin by looking at how one of our indigenous foods could seriously save lives in another country. In this case, the food is wattle seed, known also as acacia, and the country is Ethiopia, where anthropologist Peter Yates has been working with World Vision. And Peter, I understand you're in the midst of convincing the Ethiopian government that part of the solution to their country's malnutrition is already growing in situ. Yes, it came to our attention that there's several million trees Acacia saligna, which is a species from the southwest of Western Australia that's been planted in the north of Ethiopia and Tigray region over the last 20 to 30 years. For what reason was it there in the first place? They were planted mainly for soil conservation. The hillsides are completely bare and there's floods in the valleys washing away all the agricultural soil, so the government decided they needed to do something. So as we're talking about this right now, if you were worried about introduced species helping to save local food supplies, that argument's already gone. The horse has bolted on that, so we might as well use what's there. Well, that's right. There are many arguments out there that introduced species are not good, but the standard food aid that's handed out to families in Ethiopia is wheat. If you're doing well, you might get some oil with that. You can't live by bread alone. You can't live by white flour, wheat flour alone. It's it's not good nutrition. It's not complete. People typically have to take the wheat down to the market, sell it at what turns out to be very low prices because everyone's doing it, and try and buy some lentils or try and buy something else to supplement the family diet. So let's use the seeds that are now available. So what is it about these seeds that is so fantastic in terms of life-giving quality? Well, the acacia saligna seed is, we think, about 18% usable protein. Usable by the body, you mean? Yes. Right. That's the digestible amino acids. Mm-hmm. It's also fairly rich in starch and therefore energy. And what's important about acacia is that it's analogous to a lentil or a bean. So in a poor vegetarian diet, and most poor diets are very much vegetarian yes. and cereal-based. They tend to be very low in the essential amino acid lysine. Beans, lentils and acacia seed happen to be very high in lysine. So Pulses and legumes. Pulses and legumes are very high in lysine. So by mixing a cereal and a legume, you can increase overall the availability of protein and the quality of the available protein. So we've got several million of these particular species of acacia imported from Australia years ago to help with soil erosion, but happened to be a, a lovely byproduct is that they could actually help increase protein levels within overall diet, particularly in times of need. How hard is it to harvest? 
The, the thing is, in Ethiopia, at any given time, there are seven million people hungry. So it's not even in times of need. It's just normal. Just normal. Okay. So the idea that you can you can improve food availability on a normal year is actually very beneficial. So we're talking about a permanent supplement then? Yes. How hard it is to harvest? Well, it's pretty much a matter of taking a tarpaulin up a hill. You have to climb a big hill sometimes mm-hmm. and a stick and you lay the tarpaulin under the tree, bang it with a stick. Now your timing's got to be spot on here, but otherwise you have to work hard and the seed will rain down in an enormous shower. Within a pod? If your timing's right, the seed will fall from the pod and then all you have to do later is winnow that out or sieve it out or whatever the technology happens to be. Okay, so once that process is done, isn't there some difficulty still with eating this seed because there's levels of cyanide to deal with? The Australian species have very little cyanide. Some of the African species have quite high levels. The Australian species have less than a third of the amounts allowed by the World Health Organization. There are some anti-nutritional factors. There is a toxin called gencolic acid present. And doesn't gencolic acid cause kidney damage? So how do you get rid of that? Roasting. Really? We can roast the seed and remove more than 90% of the gencolic acid, which means what remains is quite negligible. And the roasting does not affect its nutritional value? It does reduce all the proteins somewhat, but on balance it comes out quite well. So where are you up to in terms of trials of this way of supplementing what could be a regular diet for Ethiopian people in need? Well, we've gone through a series of toxicology tests. We have a few more to go just to convince the Ethiopian Ministry of Health that this is a good thing. Uh, We hope to move to clinical trials in about a year. You've eaten the seed yourself? Used to eat it a lot when I lived in Alice Springs. I ran a bush food business. I ate acacia seed. So you'd do the roasting, you'd go through the process. Yes. So do you have any sense about how Indigenous people in parts of this country feel about you taking what is one of their foundation foods to Ethiopia? All the Aboriginal people that I have engaged with on this and discussed this with have been incredibly positive about the idea. They're really excited that something of theirs is going to serve an important purpose elsewhere for very poor people. They love the idea. Now, I won't say that's everybody, but the people I've spoken to all say we love it. What's a good way to eat it after roasting? In Australia, we use it as a spice. We flavour ice cream and gravy and biscuits and you name it. Everyone's tried something strange, chocolate, with um, wattle seed. When you're using it in Africa, we're looking for a different thing. We don't roast it as much, so we don't get that dark, chocolatey roast that we achieve in Australia. Instead, we we roast it just enough to get rid of the toxins, and we end up with a much lighter coloured and a much lighter flavoured meal that looks a little bit like polenta, only it's a little browner. And our work in Niger, the, the local people have invented more than 20 local recipes, so they simply incorporate... They leave out part of the millet, which is what their usual cereal is, replace it with acacia meal and cook as before. They claim to have more energy. They claim to see better in the dark. They (laughs) They claim to not get hungry. And when they feed it to their children, their children sleep through the night. Well, that's a pretty fair claim then, isn't it? Well, yeah, who's to argue? And while they wait for Ethiopian government approval to begin dietary trials using Australian wattle seed... There's a growing call to heed the benefits of Indigenous foods in other parts of the globe as well. Indigenous foods can be very important because in a lot of cases we can go forward uh, in improving food security by going back. Danielle Nirenberg is president of Food Tech. 
It's a think tank on food and food security based in Washington. And Danielle says ancient grains, for example, fonio, F-O-N-I-O, found in West Africa, not only grow faster using less water, they're pest resistant and way more nutritious than introduced crops. We've also created a population where nearly 1 billion people are malnourished and another 1 billion people are overweight. And that's the result of heavy investment in starchy staple crops that do a lot to fill people up but don't really nourish them. We've just been speaking to Peter Yates, who's an anthropologist and advisor to World Vision Australia, on the potential for wattle seed or acacia seed to provide a permanent supplement to the diets of people in Ethiopia. Can you see indigenous foods in other parts of the globe performing the same task? Absolutely. When you're looking at a crop like amaranth, which can grow in Mexico and Central America, it's very rich in calcium, iron, magnesium, potassium, and other essential nutrients. And when you look at the starchy staple crops that we've invested in very heavily since the 1950s and 60s, they don't really have the same nutritional bang for the buck as some of these Indigenous crops do. One of the criticisms facing Indigenous food, for example, in Australia, is that there's no guarantee of supply, that the economies of scale don't match demand, and therefore you can't trust that when you need them, they're going to be there. That can be the same for some of the, the commodity and cash crops we've been growing. I think the thing to think about... When we're talking about food security, whether we're talking about climate change or indigenous crops or or any other issue, is that we really need to change our thinking and revert to more regional and local food systems so that parts of the world can really maintain their own regional and local food security and not be dependent on international demand or markets so that farmers and eaters have the foods that they need when they need them. Danielle Nirenberg, thank you so much for joining us on RN First Bite. Thank you. And for information on the greater role Indigenous foods could be playing in feeding the globe, head to abc.net.au slash rn and look for RN First Bite on the right-hand side. We'll have links, photos and more related stories for you to peruse, including our coverage of an Indigenous food becoming so popular globally it's priced locals out of the market. I'm talking here about the case of the so-called South American superfood quinoa. Stay tuned because shortly I'm going to eat cactus in the search for the culinary time tunnel between the Aztecs and modern-day Mexico. But first, can I ask the question that is haunting modern-day Australia? How do we fat-wash a spirit? Here's mixologist Nick Tessa, who came into work on his day off to take me through it. The idea of fat washing is to uh, take the fat, or if you're a chef, the flavour out of uh, a different product and impart it onto the alcohol so that you can have that flavour without having the greasy texture. And um, in doing so, you're melting down the fat, putting it with the spirit of your choosing. How regularly do you fat wash of a night? <laughs> uh, depends on the menu at the time. We'll be putting on a coconut oil fat washed, you know, so it'll be tropical yet still malty. Is there a demand? Or do people come in and go, I'm here for the fat washing? No, not so much. No. <laughs> <laughs> I hope one day they do. <laughs> So it's still an emerging 
trend, is uh, it? What's, it's a trend that was in fashion and has gone out of fashion and is definitely coming back in as uh, classic cocktails are being appreciated. And Sebastian Costello down at Bad Frankie's is uh, doing a, a lamb old-fashioned. A lamb old-fashioned? A Sunday roast, if you will. In a glass? Yes. Served with peas and rosemary. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Have it's, you tasted it? It is fantastic. It's really, really good. Do you feel like you've had both dinner, lunch and a drink all at the same time? Yeah, all you need is uh, some dessert and you're done. When I ask him if he can demonstrate, Nick reaches under the bar into a cupboard and pulls out a glass jar. Yeah, you can take some um, organic coconut oil. I'm just going to heat it up so it's uh, liquid form. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just give it a shake on top of a spirit. Okay. And I usually work on a 10% basis, so 10% fat to spirit. Bacon works very well with bourbon. It's a tried and tested combination. With uh, white spirits, you want something a little bit more delicate. Hence the coconut. Definitely. Uh, if you're using something like peanut butter, you're going to want a little bit less than coconut. Bacon, again, probably a little bit less just because they're very strong flavours. Coconut's not as strong. What about fats that are oils even at room temperature, like sesame oil? You can definitely use it. You just have to put the spirit into a freezer after you've washed it so that it does solidify so you can take it out. Otherwise, you're going to get that mouth coating, which will ruin the drink. So what I've done here is I've just combined the spirit and the fat. And if you mix that around, that's going to get all the proteins out and give the flavour to the spirit. I'll put this in the freezer so that in 10 minutes' time we can come back and you can start to see the solidify on top. Okay, 10 minutes has passed and Nick has produced the goods out of the freezer. So if I dip a spoon into the bits in between those large globules of coconut fat, Nick's going to strain it for me into a glass. Here we go. I'll just give you an ice cube. Okay. And there's the coconut. There in the background, just like you said it would be. It's a great thing. My first bat wash gin. And we could do this at home as long as we follow these principles of physics. All you need is uh, some good quality spirit and uh, some good quality fat. Happy fat washing, Nick. Thank you. Enjoy. (laughs) I will. You're with Michael McKenzie here on RN First Bite and uh, the noise you can hear behind me is a mixture of contemporary society in Australia and the sounds of a traditional marketplace in what could have been the Aztec Empire where all goods are traded including food. I know this because I'm standing in front of a diorama which is quite extraordinary of what life would have been like prior to the Spanish arriving as the foreign invader. Joining me right now is Dr Barry Carr who's an historian and founder of the Institute of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University. Barry Tell us about this incredible painting that we're seeing right now. It's a painting by uh, one of the great Mexican muralists of the 20th century, Diego Rivera. This is a painting that you'll see in the National Palace in Mexico City. It was painted roughly in 1944 and 45. And the theme, as you pointed out, is the theme is markets. And it's a wonderful imaginative but carefully researched reconstruction of what it must have been like to look at the main marketplace in the Aztec capital. So it's all about the genius, really, of indigenous peoples before the nasty Spaniards arrived. And I'm deliberately using that kind of pejorative language because Rivera was a cultural nationalist and for him the Spanish arrival was an ecological and political disaster. 
Just describe for us how sophisticated Aztec society was prior to the arrival of the Spanish. The most dramatic thing, I think, and something that students and general public always amazed at, is to, to realise that the Aztec capital city, Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City, uh, was a city of about 200 thousand people. It was larger than most any other city in the world at the time. The Spaniards came, of course, from what eventually would become Spain, and the largest city there, Seville, was really only about 40 or 50,000. So imagine the astonishment of the Spaniards to actually see this city. How do you feed a city of 200,000? And if you look at the greater conurbation of Tenochtitlan probably would have been about 400,000 and in central Mexico one and a half million uh, people. Well the Aztecs came up with some very brilliant solutions uh, urban agriculture I suppose we would call it now and aquatic agriculture was one of the solutions. Obviously corn which was the fundamental basis of Aztec and many other indigenous people's culture. You could make it into those rolled flat cakes, what we call tortillas, but you could make dough and fill it with various kinds of, well, meat eventually, but fruit. Uh, you could fashion it into little uh, imitations of gods. It had hairy outside and it reminded the Aztecs of, uh, of many aspects of their religious cosmovision. So for all those reasons it was seen to be uh, absolutely fundamental along with beans and, and squash and, and chilies. So those particular vegetables formed almost a, a sort of a matrix of the staff of life because I take it protein was a little hard to come by. Well, animal protein was fairly rare. They did have some animal protein. They had fish, they had turkey. In fact, the modern turkey comes to us from Central America, from the Aztec areas. They had dogs. I hope some of our dog lovers are not too offended by this, but there was a particular kind of dog that was cultivated for, for its flesh. There was duck, and in fact, if we were to walk along this mural, you we would actually see uh, towards the end on the right-hand side some examples of duck. So there was that kind of animal protein, and they would also cultivate there insects. They Over there. there they are. You can actually see them. There's obviously some duck there. There's lots and lots of fish. Um, and you mentioned insects. Insects and insect larvae were very important. The Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, was built on a lake, partly drained lake, and so there was lots and lots of water around, and natural insect larvae or grubs uh, would be collected and then will be turned into a paste or turned into a bread uh, and grasshoppers uh, which are still today in Mexico in some parts one of the great delicacies and I would highly recommend for those listeners out there uh, don't forget chapulines uh, when you go to southern Mexico. You can tell Dr Barry Carr has more than an academic interest in the history of Central America and we'll return to him and the foods of the Aztecs shortly. But I wanted to experience this cuisine firsthand, not the tacos, nachos and melted cheese of what many Australians still think of as Mexican food, but something real. So Barry sent me to a place called Los Amates. My name is Arturo Morales. I was born in Mexico and I've been here in Australia for about 32 years. And, you know, we well, decided about 10 years ago to open um, a restaurant that can offer authentic Mexican food. There was a big lack of that back then. And when you say authentic, yeah. compared to what? Oh, to, compared to what, you know, the Tex-Mex variety. What's created north of the border, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's just not um, really, you know, the authentic 
food that we eat in Mexico. It's like, you know, they invented the hard taco shells. In Mexico, we just don't, don't see those ones anyway. Also, the variation of the burritos, for example. You know, the burritos come from the north of Mexico, and uh, we don't really have them in central or south of Mexico. The chili con carnes and the fillings, different fillings, and toppings, and a lot of cheese and a lot of sour cream and that sort of stuff, you know. But much of what is indigenous to Mexico is laid out on a table before me. So as the kitchen sizzles away in the back, Arturo takes me through some of the dishes. We start with tamales, parcels of food wrapped in dried corn husks. It's, it's a staple of Mexican food, especially central part of Mexico. And then it had to spread all the way down to North South America. Yeah. And I was reading that tamales, the Aztec version, mm -hmm. uh, came with things like axolotl yes. and flamingo as the meat. Yeah, but i just been discovered well, not long ago in one of the uh, excavations that they're known into Mexico City, a, a, an amazing a pot, a ceramic pot, which was filled with tamales or, or the, the corn husks with the, with the meat inside, which you had completely dried, you know. But it's been there for centuries. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's something that it has been preserved over generations and generations of, of grandmothers making tamales. And they're savoury and they're sweet. Uh -huh. So these corn husks, these yeah. lovely parcels of mystery, what's inside your tamales? So this is the, the rajas, rajas, which is the spicy peppers and cheese. What else was in there? The masa. That's very the corn flour? Good, yeah, the corn flour. It's, yeah. it's mixed with a very strong pork broth. How long does it take to prepare tamales? Uh, oh, they, they, there's actually a few secrets about them. Uh -huh. One is that the, the flour has to be, uh, or the masa has to be kneeled just by one person. If two people do it, there's two hands, the masa would never be ready. And also, you have to have music so the tamales can, can come good. So one pair of hands, one clean hands, hands, music to be happy. Yes. I can hear music playing in your kitchen. Oh, yeah, there's always music in the kitchen, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> can we go and have a listen yeah, to you? Cool. <laughs> Come in, Thanks. Meanwhile, back in Central America, in pre-Columbian times, the Aztecs were using cocoa beans to make the very first chocolate. But they had no sugar and no milk. Instead, they had water and that other great culinary discovery of theirs, chili. Dr. Barry Carr. So the Aztecs didn't actually add a lot of uh, sweetness to their drinks. Uh, they could, though, add honey. And in fact, somewhere not very far from where we're standing is an exhibit of the kind of a prayer that the Aztecs would make before they actually collected honey from bees, along the lines of, excuse me, sir and madam, uh, we have no choice, uh, but we're going to collect some of your production. Please don't sting me. Please don't sting me, I guess. That's right. <laughs> The cocoa bean was so valuable uh, that it was also used as a unit of currency. The Aztecs didn't have a, a currency as we would be familiar with, a metal, metalized currency, but uh, you, people would carry around cocoa beans. So 80 to 100 cocoa beans would be enough to get you, uh, let's say, uh, a canoe full of water. In fact, over here, I think, Barry, on the wall, there's a, a currency converter of cocoa, if I remember. Here we are. One cocoa bean bought a large tomato 30 bought a small rabbit and 300 a beautiful cloak. Hag haggling was common, but anyone caught cheating was severely punished. Yeah, 
tomato is an interesting reference there because the tomato also comes to us from this part of the world. So tomato, avocados, the term in Nahuatl, or the closest you can get to it is aguacatl, which also was the word used for testicle. Suddenly everything falls into place. Suddenly everything falls into place. It's really fantastic that, you know, people react that way, you know. Like, for example, try the, the nopales, which is the cactus. Where do you get your cactus from? Well, actually, I've, I've been getting some of it here. Locally grown? Locally grown, yeah. We've been able to find, but it's, it's really hard because it's different texture. It's not as, as meaty. The, the cactus here has is, got a lot of fiber, so it's not easy to clean and eat. Whether in Mexico, it's very, uh, the flesh is very clean. So we just put it in the, on top of the, the, the grill or yeah. the hot plate. And it cooks a little bit and just eat it like that, you know, so... Well, I've never had cactus in my life. Can I, can I try it? It's got a little bit of spice, but... Good. It's, I yeah. like spice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's fleshy but clean yeah. at the same time. And yeah, and it's got a very unique flavour. Yeah. And, and also, a very, very important thing... <laughs> yeah, go for it, Michael. <laughs> as I feast on these green strips of what we know as prickly pear, Arturo reminds me that the high-nutrient anti-inflammatory qualities of this low-calorie plant is being researched as we speak. And he also lists some of the other foods to emerge from Aztec culture. Squash, zucchini, white, yellow, red and blue corn that's ground into a flour called mass. The more than 130 varieties of chilli, of which there are about eight smoked and dried on the table before me. And let's not forget the traditional drink that's also survived the invasion of the Spanish conquistadors. It's called pulque. It's made from fermented sap of the agave plant. Barry Carr's drunk it. Pulque was big until the early 20th century, uh, and when beer began to be produced on a huge scale in the 20s and 30s, pulque more or less collapsed. It's never died out. It's been revived in the last 20, 25 years. In fact, amongst the hipsters of Mexico City, now it's become very popular. It's an acquired taste. I think that's the right phrase to, to use here. It has a very viscous uh, feeling on the tongue. It's kind of, some people have unkindly said it tastes like liquid snot. So it's made a comeback as people become more fond of their deep roots back to the empire. You're absolutely right. You know, that notion, that word deep is really big in Mexico because people talk, anthropologists and so on, of Mexico Profundo, the deep Mexico, the, the Mexico that survived underneath the uh, volume of cheap white bread and uh, fast food. So it's a part of the rediscovery of indigenous culture that's in a much bigger scale, really important in, in Mexico in the last 20 years. RN First Bite is produced by Kathy Pryor. Technical production from Mark Veer and Kerry Dell. And I look forward to reading your reactions on our website and through Facebook and Twitter. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes. A big thank you to all of this week's guests. I'm Michael McKenzie, and I'll catch you soon.